0: Podmoth. Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with g got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. Googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. I'm keen on protein powders that give me a little extra boost. There are mornings when I just can't get up and eat a huge breakfast, so I make a protein shake instead, and the powders I got from Unico Nutrition hit the spot. There are so many delicious flavors. Vanilla ice cream milkshake, ooey gooey frosted cinnamon roll, spoonful of peanut butter with chocolate, Aunt Judy's banana cream pie, molten chocolate lava shake, cookies and cream dream, and candy shop caramel squares. They even have a birthday cake cupcake with rainbow sprinkles. Unico protein powder for women and men is the perfect guilt-free indulgence. Use low-carb protein shakes for faster recovery after workouts, healthier snacking, or even as a meal replacement. The powder itself is so fine that it blends seamlessly into milkshakes and mixes for baked goods, And Unico has a bunch of recipes on their website for delicious donuts and keto-friendly cinnamon rolls, to name a few. Unico's everyday wellness supplements help replenish essential nutrients and help you live your best life. Trim down and tone up with Unico's best-in-class supplements for weight loss, carefully formulated with five patented all-natural ingredients to help you achieve your healthiest physique. Right now, listeners of The Identity Podcast can save $20 on their purchase at uniconutrition.com. Just head on over to their website and use code Identity at checkout. That's O-D-D-E-N-T-I-T-Y. Say goodbye to chalky, tasteless protein powders and supplements that fall flat, and say hello to Unico Nutrition. It's like a bunch of unicorns are having a rave in your mouth. Seriously. my grandmother was kind of strict that meant never being allowed out after 8 PM at night, spending most of my weekends working on homework and never being allowed to attend sleepovers. It wasn't until I was 14 that my grandmother relented and let one of my friends stay the night. Angela and I had been friends since kindergarten, bonding over a love of fuzzy stickers and eighties cartoons. Needless to say, I was excited to have my friend over, and even more excited for the opportunity to enjoy some tomfoolery I had only thus far seen on television. Pillow fights, movie watching, gossip, and using my new Ouija board. I was raised by a Roman Catholic grandmother and a grandfather who was a member of the Salvation Army faith. Yes, it's a religion and also a thrift store. And both religions were pretty clear on the use of Ouija boards. Do you wanna contact the devil? Because that's a good way to contact the devil. I'd purchased mine from a local oddity shop with some allowance that I'd twirled away. It was press board with a decal pasted on it and the planchette was plastic. How many devils or demons could I really contact with plastic and press board? When Friday came, I was over the moon I spent the entire day reorganizing my room to make space for the air mattress that would be Angela's bed. My grandfather took me to the grocery store, and I was allowed to purchase ice cream, chips, and cookies, three items that weren't usually allowed in the shopping cart, and I rented a couple of movies for the evening. My grandfather, always more easygoing, didn't even check the titles before I checked out, so I managed to get Halloween and Sleepaway Camp. That evening, Angela arrived with her sticker book, and we retired to the backyard to sit under the shade of the large oak and look at some new acquisitions. We ate microwave red Baron pizzas for dinner and talked about boys. Yeah, I was still figuring myself out, as the sun retreated. After dark, we put in Halloween and shrieked at the jump scares. My grandparents checked in on us a couple of times and went to bed. As the credits rolled on the film, I pulled the Ouija board out from under my bed. Angela's eyes grew wide. Both of her parents were Roman Catholic, and she knew as well as I did that the use of such a tool was forbidden. But there was also a mischievous twinkle in her eye. Angela's parents were less strict than mine, but she wasn't allowed to own a Ouija board. For her parents, as well as mine, the board was a direct line to Satan. I took the board out of the box and set it on my bed, the only open space that was available, and placed the planchette on top of it. Through the round plastic window, I could see the moon smiling at me. How could something so cutesy be dangerous? Hesitantly, Angela sat on the bed next to me, and we each placed a finger on the edge of the planchette. I took a deep breath, letting it out slowly, and asked my first question. Is there anyone here with us right now? The planchette didn't move. If you're here, let us know. Slowly, the planchette slid across the board and settled over, yes. Angela and I both removed our hands at the same moment, our eyes wide. Had the planchette moved on its own? No, Angela must have moved it. She swore I moved it. Neither of us would admit to committing the fraud, so we moved the planchette back to the center of the board and once again placed our fingers on it. Angela asked, Can you tell us your name? After a few moments, the planchette moved again, sliding to the D-E-V-I. Before the planchette reached the final letter, both Angela and I ran screaming from the room. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast on the PodMoth Media Network, your weekly foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. This week, we'll take a look at the mysterious talking board that has horrified and titillated users since 1891. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who hasn't had an experience with this particular novelty, and surprised to find that there are individuals who have large collections of the boards sitting in their basements. They come in every shape and size, some made with old tabletop and others of press board. In this episode, we'll also look at some of the most highly collectible Ouija artifacts and examine why these boards are still so popular today. We might even venture into the OddPod email for a few listener experiences. And now, on with the show. From Smithsonian Magazine, quote, The Ouija board, in fact, came out of the American 19th century obsession with spiritualism, the belief that the dead are able to communicate with the living. Spiritualism, which has been around for years in Europe, hit America hard in 1848 with the sudden prominence of the Fox sisters in upstate New York. The Foxes claimed to receive messages from spirits who rapped on the walls in answer to questions, recreating this feat of channeling in parlors across the state. Aided by the stories about the Celebrity Sisters and other spiritualists in the new national press, spiritualism reached millions of adherents, at its peak in the second half of the 19th century. Spiritualism worked for Americans. It was compatible with Christian dogma, meaning one could hold a seance on Saturday night and have no qualms about going to church the next day. It was an acceptable, even wholesome activity to contact spirits at seances through automatic writing or table-turning parties, in which participants would place their hands on a small table and watch it begin to shake and rattle, while they all declared that they weren't moving it. The movement also offered solace in an era where the average lifespan was less than 50. Women died in childbirth, children died of disease, and men died in war. Even Mary Todd Lincoln, wife of the venerable president, conducted seances in the White House after their 11-year-old son died of fever in 1862. During the Civil War, spiritualism gained adherence in droves, people desperate to connect with loved ones who'd gone away to war and never come home. Communicating with the dead was common. It wasn't seen as bizarre or weird, explains Robert Murch. Merch has been studying history of the Ouija board since 1992. It's hard to imagine that now, we look at that and think, why are you opening the gates of hell? But opening the gates of hell wasn't on anyone's mind when they started the Canard Novelty Company, the first producers of the Ouija board. In fact, they were mostly looking to open Americans' wallets. As spiritualism had grown in American culture, So too did frustration with how long it took to get any meaningful message out of the spirits, says Brandon Hodge, spiritualism historian. Calling out the alphabet and waiting for a knock on the right letter, for example, was boring. After all, rapid communication with breathing humans at far distances was a possibility. The telegraph had been around for decades. Why shouldn't spirits be easier to reach? People were desperate for methods of communication that would be quicker. And while several entrepreneurs realized that, it was the Canard Novelty Company that really nailed it." End quote. The Associated Press reported on a talking board taking over spiritualist camps in Ohio in 1886. The board contained letters and numbers and the planchette was used to navigate from point to point. The news of this board was widespread but Charles Kennard of Baltimore was the first individual to act. He gathered a group of investors, including local attorney Elijah Bond and surveyor Colonel Washington Bowie, to start the Kennard Novelty Company. The company would exclusively make these boards, and although none of the investors were spiritualists, they were businessmen who had found a niche in the market. Truthfully, similar models of the talking board had been in use since the 4th century B.C. Two men were executed for using a pendulum and a disc with the alphabet on it to contact the spirits. Of course, at this point, the board didn't have a name. It said that the board got its name from the French word, oui, for yes, and the German equivalent, ja. This is not the case. In truth, it was Bond's sister-in-law, Helen Peters, a medium, who named the board. In a seance, they asked the board what it wished to be called. The name Ouija came through, and when asked what it meant, the board replied, good luck. Peters did acknowledge that she was wearing a locket at the time, with the photo of a woman inside it. Above her head was the name Ouida, the name of a prominent women's rights activist. Peters admired the woman, and the response of Ouija was likely a misreading of Ouija. Merch has conducted many interviews with the descendants of Ouija founders, and he's seen the original Ouija patent file himself. The patent request for the Ouija board hit a snag. There was no way for anyone to prove that the board actually worked. If they couldn't prove that, they wouldn't get their patent. Bond and Peters went to the patent office in Washington to file their application, but the chief patent officer demanded a demonstration of the board, proving its abilities. If the board could spell out the man's name, he would give Bond the patent. Quote, They all sat down, communed with the spirits, and the planchette faithfully spelled out the patent officer's name. Whether or not it was mystical spirits or the fact that Bond, as a patent attorney, may have just known the man's name. Well, that's unclear, Murch says. But on February 10, 1891, a white-faced and visibly shaken patent officer awarded Bond a patent for his new toy or game, end quote. From the original patent, quote, to all whom it may concern, be it known that I, Elijah J. Bond, a citizen of the United States residing at Baltimore in the state of Maryland, have invented certain new and useful improvements in toys or games, and I do declare the following to be a full, clear, and exact description of the invention, such as will enable others, skilled in the art, to which it pertains, to make and use the same, reference being had to the accompanying drawings, and to the letters and figures of reference marked thereon, which form a part of this specification." My invention relates to improvements in toys or games which I designate as a Ouija or Egyptian luck board. And the objects of the invention are to produce a toy or game by which two or more persons can amuse themselves by asking questions of any kind and having them answered by the device used and operated by the touch of a hand, so that the answers are designated by letters on a board. The invention consists of a board of suitable thickness having the letters of the alphabet printed, painted, engraved, or affixed upon in any suitable manner, but flush with the surface, and also the numerals 1 to 0, inclusive, as well as other configurations, and in conjunction therewith of a peculiarly shaped table, having legs around a pointer, and said table to be operated by the hand when placed upon said board, all of which will be more fully described here and after, and specifically pointed out in the claims, reference being had to the accompanying drawings and the letters marked thereon, end quote. By 1892, Kennard Novelty Company expanded greatly from one of their factories in Baltimore. They opened another in the city, two in Chicago, two in New York, and one in London. By this time, Kennard and Bond were over the board craze, allowing a man named William Fold to work his way up the ladder from employee to stockholder to being in the driver's seat. In 1898, Fold received Colonel Bowie's blessing and was given the exclusive rights to the talking board, licensing it. Rival boards were launched in the coming years, but none were so popular as the original Ouija. Companies tried to replicate Ouija's success and many other boards became available, like the cable graph, a wander board, Sphinx Oracle Board, Stargazer, Crystal Gazer, Swami, and Hindu Oracle. The original Ouija would outsell them all. Smithsonian magazine writes quote, The board's instant and now more than one hundred and twenty years later, prolonged success showed that it had tapped into a weird place in American culture. It was marketed as both mystical oriel and as family entertainment, fun with an element of otherworldly excitement. This meant that it wasn't only spiritualists who bought the board. In fact, the people who disliked the Ouija board the most tended to be spirit mediums, as they'd found that their job as spiritual middleman had been cut out. The Ouija board appealed to people from across the wide spectrum of ages, professions, and education, Mostly, merch claims, because the Ouija board offered a fun way for people to believe in something. People want to believe. The need to believe that something else is out there is powerful, he says. This thing is one of those things that allows them to express that belief. It's quite logical, then, that the board would find greatest popularity in uncertain times, when people hold fast to belief and look for answers from just about anywhere, Especially cheap DIY oracles. The 1910s and 20s, with the devastations of World War I and the manic years of the Jazz Age and Prohibition, witnessed a surge in Ouija popularity. It was so normal that in May 1920, Norman Rockwell, illustrator of blissful 20th century domesticity, depicted a man and a woman, Ouija board on their knees communing with the Beyond on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. During the Great Depression, the Fould Company opened new factories to meet demand for the boards. Over five months in 1944, a single New York department store sold 50,000 of them. In 1967, the year after Parker Brothers bought the game from the Fooled Company, two million boards were sold, outselling Monopoly. That same year saw more American troops in Vietnam, the counterculture Summer of Love in San Francisco, and race riots in Newark, Detroit, Minneapolis, and Milwaukee. Strange Ouija tales also made frequent titillating appearances in American newspapers. In 1920, National Wire Services reported that would-be crime solvers were turning to their Ouija boards for clues in the mysterious murder of a New York City gambler. Joseph Burton Elwell, much to the frustration of the police. In 1921, the New York Times reported that a Chicago woman being sent to a psychiatric hospital tried to explain to doctors that she wasn't suffering from mania, but that Ouija spirits had told her to leave her mother's dead body in the living room for 15 days before burying her in the backyard. In 1930, Newspaper readers thrilled to accounts of two women in Buffalo, New York, who murdered another woman, supposedly on the encouragement of Ouija board messages. In 1941, a 23-year-old gas station attendant from New Jersey told the New York Times that he'd joined the Army because the Ouija board told him to. In 1958, a Connecticut court decided not to honor the Ouija board will of Miss Helen Dow Peck, who left only $1,000 to two former servants... And an insane $152,000 to Mr. John Gale Forbes, a lucky but bodiless spirit who had contacted her via the Ouija board. End quote. Fold, having been sold the remaining business interest in Ouija in 1919 for the cost of a dollar, died in a freak accident after falling from one of the factory roofs in 1927. I suppose you could speculate it had something to do with the evil contained within the boards but that's pure speculation. Until around 1973, the Ouija board was seasonally popular and existed on the periphery of American culture. This was the year that brought us The Exorcist, a film that caused some theatergoers to faint, vomit, and claim demonic possession simply because they watched it. In the film, 12-year-old Reagan is possessed by a demon after playing with a Ouija board, a demon who calls himself Mr. Howdy, and violently possesses the girl. Between the scenes of Reagan spinning her head around and spewing pea soup, we see a young girl struggling against the will of a demon. Truthfully, the movie still gives me the heebie-jeebies, but if you've never seen it, I'd highly recommend it. They just don't make them like that anymore. Up until this point, depictions of the talking board were relatively harmless. The Exorcist changed all of that. Overnight, the Ouija board became a tool of Satan, and horror writers and filmmakers jumped on the Ouija bandwagon. If you wanted to open the door to hell, look no further than your nearest talking board. Religious types denounced the use of them and considered them to be portals. Merch was even told to leave his boards at home when called to speak at paranormal conventions because they scared people far too much. Parker Brothers, later Hasbro, has sold hundreds of thousands of the boards since 1991, but the board itself has become more of a gag than a spiritual tool. Perhaps that's how they should be classified. Quote, Ouija boards are not, scientists say, powered by spirits or even demons. Disappointing, but also potentially useful, because they're powered by us. Even when we protest that we're not doing it, we swear. Ouija boards work on the principle known to those studying the mind for more than 160 years as the Idiometer Effect. In 1852, physician and physiologist William Benjamin Carpenter published a report for the Royal Institution of Great Britain examining these automatic muscular movements that take place without the conscious will or volition of the individual. Think crying in reaction to a sad film, for example. Almost immediately... Other researchers saw applications of the idiometer effect in the popular spiritualist pastimes. In 1853, chemist and physicist Michael Faraday, intrigued by table turning, conducted a series of experiments that proved to him, though not to most spiritualists, that the table's motion was due to the idiomotor actions of the participants. The effect is very convincing, as Dr. Chris French Professor of Psychology and Anomalistic Psychology at Goldsmiths University of London explains, it can generate a very strong impression that the movement is being caused by some outside agency, but it's not. Other devices such as dowsing rods, or more recently the fake bomb detection kits that deceived scores of international governments and armed services, work on the same principle of non-conscious movement. The thing about all these mechanisms we're talking about Dowsing rods, Ouija boards, pendulums, these small tables, they're all devices whereby quite a small muscular movement can cause quite a large effect, he says. Planchettes, in particular, are well-suited for their task. Many used to be constructed of a lightweight wooden board and fitted with small casters to help them move more smoothly and freely. Now they're usually plastic and have felt feet which also help it to slide over the board easily, End quote. Think about it. You're sitting in a room with four or five other people, and you decide to whip out the old Ouija and have an impromptu seance. Everyone contributes a finger to the effort of contacting Vielzebub, and you're on your merry way, coasting easily from letter to letter until the entire crowd is thoroughly spooked. Those assembled likely already have the expectation that something will happen, whether it's mystical or magical depends on the participant, and have probably used a board before. Perhaps some of them are even ready to move the planchette themselves to give everyone a good scare. The point is, once the idea is implanted, something is sure to happen. So, science has figured it all out. Your friend. The one telling you that they are absolutely, positively, 100% not moving the planchette is a goddamn liar. This is true in every scenario, right? Well, let's dig into a couple of Ouija tales from the OddPod email, and you can decide for yourself. My old deodorant just wasn't cutting it anymore. I was constantly itchy and frequently had rashes under my arms. Then I switched to Lumi. In case you were wondering, everything they say in the cute advertisements with the French lady that you've seen are true. Lumi is a natural deodorant for underarms and private parts that's clinically proven to last up to 48 hours. I can now go almost 72 hours without reapplication. I also use Lumi on my feet, and they have a line of soap, lotion, and wipes to satisfy all of your stink suppression needs. Lumi was invented by an OBGYN, is safe for any external use, and is made without aluminum, baking soda, or fragrance oils. So it's safe for even the most sensitive skin, but Lumi still smells pleasant. I'm partial to the juniper berry and clean tangerine myself, but there's also jasmine rose, silver spruce, lavender sage, coconut crush, and unscented. Right now, Lumi is offering first-class shipping on USPS orders, over $20 or more, and there's always a sensational sale on their site. You see what I did there? And as a bonus, if you buy using my link, you'll be automatically entered to win a free Lumi product every week. So head on over to the Lumi website via the link in the show notes and take Lumi out for a spin. Lumi, for everyone's pits and stinky bits. Bobby from Arkansas writes, I think I was nine or ten. My sister had gotten sick and had to be hospitalized, so my parents sent me to stay with my aunt, who lived in a rural part of Arkansas. We're talking drive three hours to the grocery store rural. Anyway, I got to her house on a Wednesday. It was the summer, so I didn't have school, and my cousins were home from summer camp. I was put up in an attic room in their farmhouse. I think it was built in the 1900s, really old and creaky. I remember walking up a tall staircase to the attic and feeling terrified. My youngest cousin offered to stay up there with me. She was a year younger than I was because I was so freaked out. The first night, she and my older cousin pulled out the Ouija board. I wasn't from a religious family and didn't really see it as anything more than a joke. So we started fooling around with it. We'd ask questions, my older cousin would fake voices, telling us it was the spirit that we were trying to contact. We'd all laugh and try again. The second night was different. We'd been playing around with the board for about an hour and started to hear scratching in the walls. It started softly at first and grew louder until it was almost as if someone was pounding the heel of their hand against the wall before running their nails down in. If you went outside the room and pressed your ear to the wall, there was nothing. You could only hear the sound inside the room. We all freaked out, and my aunt came upstairs to calm us down. She told us all to go to bed. We told her about the scratching, but she said that the house was old and it might be mice. My uncle would lay some traps in the morning. My younger cousin and I lay down on the twin-size mattress and tried to get to sleep. We must have fallen asleep because I woke up to hear her crying. I was facing the wall, so I rolled over to check on her but she was fast asleep. I was still hearing the crying sounds, so I sat up. When I looked on the floor by the bed, I could see the Ouija board and the planchette. The planchette was moving on its own. It wasn't spelling anything out, just slowly moving around the board. I jabbed my cousin to wake her, but by the time I had her look, the planchette had stopped moving. I'll never forget that night, and I'll never touch a Ouija board again. Zariah from New York writes, We moved to New York from Detroit when I was seven. It was me, my four-year-old little brother, Dug. His name is Douglas, but I pronounced it Duke when I was little, and it kind of stuck. My mom and my grandmother. My dad was stationed overseas, he's in the Army, and said that he would join us later when his tour was over. The building we found an apartment in was really old and smelled musty. The stairs up to the third floor, it was a walk-up, were carpeted in yellow and orange shag carpeting from the 70s that was almost worn through and stained from the traffic up and down. The apartment itself wasn't bad, no real view, but it was clean and the windows let in a lot of light. My mom and grandmother never felt anything off about the apartment, but my little brother did. He would wake up screaming at night, saying that someone was outside his window on the fire escape. Everyone else settled into life in New York and their new surroundings. I liked my school, and I'd made some friends, but Duke never settled. He was awake most nights crying and calling out to my mother, who eventually got frustrated and stopped coming into his room every single time he would yell out. She said he had to soothe himself to sleep. Even though I wanted to go in and try to comfort him, I was told to leave him alone because it was better for him. It seemed like she was right, because after a couple of weeks, he stopped crying. On my eighth birthday, I wanted to have a sleepover. I was allowed to invite ten kids, because that was about all our apartment could hold, and two of my closest girlfriends could stay the night. After the party was over, and myself and my friends had settled into a fort that we'd made in my room for the night, we started telling creepy stories, Of course, for us, these creepy stories were pretty tame. We told stories about ghosts floating around in white sheets and monsters under the bed. Kid stuff. After a couple of hours, we'd exhausted all of the stories that we knew or could think up, and one of my friends, Janie, pulled out a Ouija board from her knapsack. She'd gotten it from her older sister's room and thought it would be fun to play around. My other friend, Rebecca, was instantly terrified. She didn't want to use it and almost started to cry. We told her that she didn't have to, and Janie and I would try it first. We placed the board between us and set the planchette down. The board itself was made out of wood, not like the cheap ones you see nowadays, and the planchette was wooden as well. It felt heavy and smelled kind of musty like the apartment. We asked the usual questions. What's your name? Is anyone here with us? Can you tell us where you're from? The usual fare. Janie, getting bored with the game, asked, Tell us something we don't know. I said that was a silly question because she could move the planchette and make it say whatever she wanted. She swore she hadn't moved it once and wouldn't move it now. We placed our fingers on the planchette and watched as it moved from letter to letter. The first time, it spelled out boy. The second word was fall. Fall. It made no sense to either of us. It was late, and we decided to go to bed. Clearly, Janie was moving the planchette and trying to scare me and Rebecca. There was no other explanation. We went to sleep. It was dark when the three of us woke up suddenly to my mother and grandmother screaming. I could hear the apartment door slam, and everything was suddenly very still. Then I heard people yelling and a strange rattling sound. I found out later that around 3 a.m., my little brother had managed to open the window and gone out onto the fire escape to follow who he called the man. He had fallen from the third floor to the second floor section of the fire escape and had broken his arm. My mother called an ambulance, and my grandmother and I took my friends home. Luckily, my brother only broke his arm. He could have fallen three stories. I still think back on the message the Ouija board gave us, and if it was a warning. I guess I'll never know, but I'll never forget it either. I'm now almost 40, and I still think about it. My brother doesn't believe a word of my story, but he does think that he was lucky. As of 2017, Robert Murch, located in Denver, had the largest collection of Ouija brand and other talking boards in his basement museum, some dating back to the 1890s. I'm assuming he still holds the title, as I haven't seen any other names come up on internet searches. Merch has over 1,000 boards, an impressive collection indeed, and he's the chairman of the Talking Boards Historical Society, a registered nonprofit dedicated towards preserving the history of talking boards and all the people who are part of that world. Apparently, his husband isn't a superfan of the collection, as some of the items come with a hefty price tag. But he endures because it's something that his husband is passionate about. And that's kind of familiar to me. Merch told Next9 News Denver that Helen Peters, the woman who named the original Ouija board, used to live in Denver's Cap Hill neighborhood at the turn of the 20th century, and she's buried in Denver. The Talking Board Historical Society raised money to get a gravestone for her final resting place. So what do we make of Ouija boards? If we believe all the stories and pop culture hocus-pocus surrounding them, they're invitations to possession. Clearly, portals to the other side, an other side you don't want to invite to your slumber party. If we look at the games that Hasbro produces, in addition to the Ouija board, we also see Cranium on that list. The scariest thing about that is the fact that the Cadoo version was recalled due to a lead paint hazard. Of course, I'm not discounting the experiences my listeners have submitted. It's hard to discount something you've experienced firsthand. I've had many paranormal experiences that I can't explain, but I continue to believe them because I was there. For real, though, Hungry Hungry Hippos does cause me some severe anxiety. That's it for this week, dear listeners. Tune in next week for more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until next time... Stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram, at IdentityPod, and Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you haven't already, please make sure to mash that subscribe button to be sure you're in the know when a new episode drops sincerest thanks to all that have promoted the identity podcast to their family friends and co-workers every little bit helps